Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Um, this is where I weekly have the opportunity of learning from Dr. James Emery White on all things related to the church's relationship with culture. Now, a few weeks ago, Jim, you outlined six values of our church that embody how we best try to live out the dual commands of loving God and loving others. And one of those values is to uphold the claim that the Bible matters. Now, while most churches would agree with that, although we can certainly disagree and do over how to interpret it at times, um, culture at large doesn't readily accept that claim, at least not anymore. As we've shifted to a post-Christian society, we've traded in a blanket acceptance of the Bible to having more of a skeptical eye at anything claiming to be, and I think this is key, authoritative. And yet too many churches, I would say, are still operating with the assumption that those coming to their services either A, believe the Bible is true, or B, believe that the Bible is important or relevant at all. So today I thought it might be helpful to ask you the questions that culture is asking about the Bible. And I would say too, from my years of teaching the Bible, a lot of Christians have these same questions too. It's just whether they feel brave enough or safe enough to ask them. That's the real kicker. But let's start out with something simple. Again, it might be simple to you, but for culture, it's not as simple. Let's start off with what is the Bible and why is it special or sacred to Christians? Well, the Bible's a library. Uh, of 66 books written by over 40 authors over a period of around 1,500 years. It, uh, the library of books falls into two parts, uh, what we call testaments, the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 of the 66 books. Uh, the word testament simply means agreement or covenant. Uh, the entire Bible is a record of God's great covenant or promises to us in regard to our relationship with him. Uh, The Old Testament is a record of God's covenants and God's agreements, God's dealings with people before the time of Jesus. And the New Testament covers everything that happened um, when Jesus came and what happened after his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Jesus, and the New Testament kind of looks back on the coming of Jesus. So while it's 66 books in two parts, it's really one story. It's one book, which is why we call it the Bible. The English word Bible um, comes from the the name of the papyrus reeds uh, or biblos reeds, it was called, that were used for making scrolls and books uh, because they were made from biblos reeds. We actually spelled B-Y-B-L-O-S. Books came to be known as Bibles. Uh, Be like, you know, you make a book out of paper, so often we're going to call books papers. I mean, that'd be very similar. Uh, But the writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament Uh, were so sacred, so special, so revered, they came to be known simply as the book, the Biblos, the Bible. For Christians, we're talking about a book that has been inspired by God. And and, and that's a very important understanding. And let's not water that word down. Sometimes we use the word inspired uh, to mean that something was wonderfully creative, or like a painting by Rembrandt, or music by Bach, or a play by Shakespeare. Um, Sometimes we use the word to refer to something that was uh, a feeling, you know, uh, 
of being inspired that way, a beautiful sunset or like a powerful speech could be inspiring. Inspiration as it relates to the Bible is, is far, far, far more profound. Uh, the Greek word that Paul used for inspired, theopanoustos, God breathed is what it means. Literally, God breathed, um, breathed out by God, exhaled by God, produced by God. It's not a human book. It was written by humans, but as they were moved by God, it reflects their personality and their vocabulary and their writing style. But the act of writing itself was inspired by God, stirred by God. Uh, the idea of inspiration is that God used people to write the books of the Bible, but was so involved in the process, they wrote exactly what he wanted. Hmm. I love that you started off by saying that the Bible is a collection of 66 books. And yet, as I think about this from the perspective of someone who is skeptical of the Bible, I think that is a sticking point for many. I think the question is not just accepting the Bible as a whole, but why those 66 books in particular? And in the last 20 years or so, we're hearing a lot more about these supposed lost books of the Bible. So what if we don't have the right books? I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, let's dig in. Let's start off with why these books. Um, and again, this is from the Christian perspective. Uh, Christians take the writings of the Bible as the word of God uh, for our lives for one reason, Jesus. You know, when, you, when, you're, when you're a Christian, you start with Jesus and you work out on everything. Every issue, every, I mean, you really start with Jesus. It's a very, obviously, we're a very Christocentric faith. Um, the Old Testament was seen as sacred, yes, before Jesus, but they re, and they recorded God's dealings and God's prophets um, that people had seen and heard, and the same with the New Testament. But Jesus is the one who brings confirmation to both. And here's why. If you believe Jesus was who he said he was, that he was God himself in human form, then what he said is what matters more than anything. So if he said something was scripture, or he said in motion the writing of something to be scripture, then it's scripture because it was Jesus' validation. Uh, if he was who he said he was, and it's not about what books I think ought to be set apart or sacred or inspired or what books you think should make the cut, it's what he said about it. And the Bible we have is the one he set apart without a doubt. And let me unpack that because a lot of people don't realize just how much Jesus I mean, was really the, the one that Determine the canon, if you will. Mm -hmm. First, we accept the Old Testament as scripture because Jesus did. Uh, when Jesus made reference to the scriptures, he which he clearly accepted as scripture and as inspired by God, he was referring to the Old Testament we have today. So that's an easy one. Uh, he referred to the writers of the Old Testament as having been inspired by the Holy Spirit and that being the very word of God. When we come to the New Testament, again, we look to Jesus for its establishment. Uh, first, because a lot of it records what he actually said and taught. And if he was God in human form and he taught something, I would call that scripture. So the Gospels are not a hard sell. But he also laid the foundation for the writings of the rest of the New Testament to be accepted as scripture because they, uh, through the appointment of the apostles. Jesus chose the, word, chose the word apostle for 12 of his disciples in order to indicate their role. The word apostle means those who have been sent. Um, and the mission Jesus sent them on was very specific. It was one for teaching and preaching. Uh, the word is used only of the 12 originally chosen by Jesus and then a handful of select others, most notably the Apostle Paul. The apostles had received a unique commission from Jesus himself, never to be repeated, uh, to assume a prophetic role and to speak God's words to the people. They were never self-appointed. As a literal Greek has Jesus saying to Paul in Acts 26, it's a very powerful 
commissioning, I apostle you. The Greek is very powerful. Uh, even when, uh, and then each was given a, a historical experience of interaction with Jesus himself. They were with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. They were mentored by Jesus. For Paul, the last apostle appointed, it was a post-resurrection interaction and appointment. Without this, he could not have been an apostle. These were the men who were to speak in Jesus' name that were to carry his word to others. They carried the very authority of Jesus himself as they taught. Uh, Jesus even said these words to them. He said, you know, he, he who receives you receives me. I mean, he was extremely blunt about it. And then each apostle was given a very special inspiration for their teaching from Jesus himself through the Holy Spirit. While all Christians receive and have the Holy Spirit within them from the moment of conversion, Jesus promised the apostles a special ministry of the Holy Spirit in regard to their teaching and their writing that the Holy Spirit would give them a remembrance of the teaching of Jesus and inspire them to teach others truths as well that would be from God. Um, Jesus also said that they would be guided into all truth, which is why the teachings of the apostles were considered scripture. And the mark of what would be included in the New Testament was very simple. Was it written by or based on the teaching of Jesus or one of the apostles? That was the litmus test. If it wasn't, wasn't in the, it wasn't accepted. This is why we read in the second chapter of Acts, um, which records the history of the early church, that right off the bat, I mean, this was in Acts 242 through 47, you know, that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So when it comes to the Bible, we didn't choose these books. It wasn't something a group of church leaders sat down one day and randomly picked or voted on in that sense. Jesus had already embraced and affirmed the Old Testament as the word of God. The first four books of the New Testament capture his own life and teaching as God himself in human form come to planet Earth. And then the rest of the New Testament was personally commissioned by Jesus, written by his handpicked apostles or through apostolic testimony or um, apostolic teaching through a special working of the Holy Spirit as they wrote. This is why uh, when the ancient church made it official through the Council of Jamnia, in AD 90 for the Old Testament, and then in 397 for the New Testament, the Council of Carthage, it wasn't a selection process. It was a confirmation process, even a coronation process. Uh, it was about which books Jesus had clearly set apart. And the reason they didn't do it sooner than that was because they didn't need to. I mean, it was like, it was never contested. It was just until when heresy began to raise its head later on, they said, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? We all know what the books are. Let's go ahead and make it official. We never had to before because it was always just assumed and understood. So you're welcome to reject Jesus and to reject the Bible. But what you can't do is accept Jesus and then reject the Bible uh, because he's the one that set it apart. You're welcome to reject Jesus and reject the Bible, but you can't accept Jesus and reject the Bible. He just didn't give you that option. So to your add-on question, what about all those lost books of the Bible we've supposedly heard about? Well, you know, nobody denies other ancient writings within the first five centuries following the life of Jesus. Nobody denies that some of them contain things that agree with the Gospels, and some of them contain things that don't agree with the Bibles and go against the eyewitness accounts. Nobody denies that there are documents, and you know, I've seen them and read them, such as the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas Iscariot. That's not news. Not now, not then. But even then, see, and this is where we have to get the rest of the story. But even then, they were uniformly understood to be forgeries, false in their information, and most written two to 300 years 
after the time their authors supposedly lived. They were forgeries. And what they claimed went against everything the eyewitnesses of the early Christian movement knew to be true. For example, what's called the Gospel of, of Mary denies the resurrection and argues against the second coming of Christ and rejects the suffering and death of Jesus as a path to eternal life. The manuscript even says that Jesus said there is no such thing as sin. <laughs> Not exactly in concert with anything of the other four independent accounts of Jesus that, that were written by the apostles. So um, why didn't these false, fake gospels take hold, even the ones that came out right after or around the, the life and death of Jesus? It's because, and this is this is this is important to understand, but it's it's um it, it should be foundational. People at the time knew that they were diametric, diametrically opposed to what Jesus actually said, because they were present when he said it. So they were never taken seriously when these things accounts came up because they were coming out you know, shortly after the life and death of Jesus and people around were saying, I was at the Sermon on the Mount. That is not what he said. Mm -hmm. Or I was there when he raised Lazarus. That is not what happened. I was at the crucifixion. I saw the, you know, all these kinds of things. The fact that such a document surfaces again in our day through archaeology does not mean we should give it any more credence than they gave it back then. And they didn't give it credence back then. Nobody did. Mm. Now, even if someone is trekking with you up until this point, they're like, okay, I'll check it out. They go to Barnes & Noble or they go to Amazon or something and they type in Bible and then, okay, wait, now there's tons of Bible translations to choose from, which for so many raise so many red flags. Like, mm -hmm. why are there so many translations? Do we even know that this is what God said? Or And, and is the reason that we have such a hard time agreeing with the interpretation of the Bible has something to do with the fact, the fact that we're not all reading the same translation of the Bible? So, Man, what you, are pack, your you pack a lot in a question. All right. <laughs> Let's, let me see if I can answer it concisely. The Bible was written basically in two languages, Hebrew and Koine Greek, a little Aramaic in there and such, but basically Hebrew and Greek. The Old Testament was written in the language of its day, Hebrew. New Testament was written in the language of its day, Koine Greek, uh, which is a little different than the way they speak Greek today. Uh, this, that means that all of our Bibles today are translations of those original languages. And every translation is the product of a team of scholars that has studied those languages and have translated it into English. But that's the way it is for anything that you read in English that was not originally written in English. I don't care what it is. It's a translation. The writings of Plato, the writings of Virgil, the writings of Dostoevsky, the writings of Rousseau, the writings of Kant, whatever language it was originally written in, whether German, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, French, if you read it in English, it's obviously a translation if that was not its original writing. So why are there so many? Well, it's not because we don't know what the ancient Hebrew and Greek manuscripts contain. We do. We have them. <laughs> uh, it's because modern language is a moving target. Uh, the way we talk, the words we use, even the meanings of those words, they just keep changing. Um, just think about the English language. Gay used to mean cheerful. Wicked used to be something bad. Now it means something can be good, you know, like a wicked good shot. Um, cool used to mean temperature, cold. Uh, Coke was a drink, not a drug. If someone was hot, they were literally on fire. Hacking was what you did with an ax to a tree. Your booty was what you hid from pirates. Spam used to be canned meat or I think something like meat. I'm not still sure what spam was, but it whatever it was, you ate it instead of deleted it. Um, <laughs> and social media has also changed. And just what we mean by just think about what we now mean when we say someone is a troll, a friend. We talk about a stream. We talk about a mention or a like. 
This is why dictionaries are always being updated now on an almost annual basis, and they're doing it online because there's not time to do it any other ways. They, they have to. So when the Bible was translated in the 1600s, the Greek and, manuscript, uh, Greek and Hebrew manuscripts were translated into the language of that day, which was King James English. Uh, that meant that there were lots of these and therefores and, 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 and heretofores, in other words, that we don't use today or even sometimes even make sense to us. That's why the King James Bible is called the King James Bible. It was commissioned by King James and employed what was commonly called King James English. It's very beautiful. I mean, it was considered one of the greatest works of literature in terms of a translation. Uh, but there's nothing magical or holy about the King James English. And we don't talk in King James English today, which is why there have been so many translations since then. And there will need to be more in the future. Translations are not a big deal. Let's move on to interpretation. Because that's where it gets sticky, or at least that's what you hear, that it gets sticky. Every time somebody points out something the Bible says, somebody else will say, ah, well, that's just your interpretation, as if that ends it, and it's incredibly radically subjective. As if when it comes to what the Bible says, there's nothing more than personal opinion. Okay, that's an urban legend. That's a cultural myth. There's an actual field of study for interpretation. This is not just for the Bible. It's for all of literature. It's called hermeneutics. And you study hermeneutics at the college and graduate level. And, and this is something that really is a science. Hermeneutics does mean the science of interpretation. And it is a science, a series of steps and practices and disciplines and rules that apply to interpretation. It involves grammar and syntax and context and vocabulary and definition. I mean, these are not things that are subjective. And make no mistake, 99% of the Bible doesn't take any heavy lifting in regard to interpretation. It just takes some reading. So why do so many claim that the Bible is difficult to understand? Well, for some, it's not in trying to grasp uh, the most obvious reading. It's because they don't like the implications of the reading. There's no doubt that, I mean, of course, some parts of the Bible are easier to understand than others. It reflects uh, places, histories, cultures, and language of places long ago and far away. It's like reading any ancient manuscript. Sometimes you have to have some background information on those issues to make sense of it. Um, and there are some passages that people can have some honest disagreements about, but on the essential teachings and issues, the Bible leaves little room for confusion. Um, Mark Twain once is known to quip. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that disturb me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that disturb me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of people land. Hmm. Well, let's talk about something which I think is related, which is textual credibility, because a common question that you'll get is, well, how can we even be sure that we're reading, that what we're reading now is what the authors originally wrote? Because hasn't it been tampered with over the years? Like set aside translation, what about editions? Are we on like on a brand new edition where things have been edited or modified? Yeah, more urban legends. Let's talk about them. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Bible is an old book which has been copied thousands of times over a period of centuries. So is the text we have reliable? Can we know that what the authors wrote after all this time? It's a, it, is a, it is a fair question. I think it's a very, actually astute question, an important one. The integrity of any ancient writing is determined, um, and, and just to kind of make, we kind of set this as a, as a backdrop, with any ancient writing, not just the Bible, it, it's determined by the number of what's called documented manuscripts or documented fragments of manuscripts that we have to examine. For example, there are only nine or 10 good manuscripts of, for example, Caesar's Gallic Wars in existence. The oldest of which is a copy uh, dating almost 900 years after Caesar's time. 
Yet no historian of which I am aware has serious doubts about the reality of Caesar or the integrity of the text itself based on those nine or 10 manuscripts that we have to compare. Uh, there are also less than 10 existing copies of the ancient manuscripts of Plato, um, which are available to study and compare in order to determine the accuracy and quality of the transmission of his writings throughout the years. Um, uh, the oldest of those manuscripts is a copy dating around 1400 years after it was originally written. Still, you don't have scholars discounting the historicity of the writings of Plato or expressing concern that what we have of Plato's writings is less than true to his original thought. Because you've got 10 good manuscripts, even though several hundred years between, you've got 10 to work with. When it comes to the Bible, there are over 5,000 handwritten manuscripts in the Greek language alone in support of just the New Testament that help us ensure the accuracy of its writings. Uh, many of the earliest copies are separated from the originals not by 900 years, much less 1,400 years, but by only 25 to 50 years. The Old Testament is equally rich, supported by such findings as the famous Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, providing manuscripts a thousand years older than any previously known Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible, representing almost every book of the Old Testament. Without a doubt, uh, this, this is not even up for speculation. The Bible is the most documented ancient document in history in terms of textual credibility. Hmm. All right, well, another follow-up, because I feel like somebody might say, okay, I'm convinced we have the same thing that was originally written or as close to it as possible. But that that doesn't mean that what it actually records is true. I mean, it could be fantasy. Like how well does the claims of the Bible actually line up with accepted historical records? Good question. Simply because a text may be sound doesn't mean that what it records is historically accurate. So when the Bible says that something happened, did it really happen? The text may have been preserved with integrity, but that doesn't mean that what it says is true. Interestingly, many of the writers of the Bible invite that very question. They invite just that examination uh, by claiming to be eyewitnesses to what they wrote and to have conducted research themselves to make sure that they could determine themselves what is true. Uh, Luke is a good example. John is another good example. Um, but merely claiming to convey factual historical truth as eyewitnesses uh, also has little to do with whether or not the actual writings are true. So how has the Bible stood up under outside examination? A particular interest would, would um, be probably the litmus test for such things, uh, which is archaeology. Uh, Sir William Ramsey of Oxford University, regarded as one of the greatest archaeologists ever to have lived, uh, concluded after his own examination that the writers of the Bible are historians of the first rank that should be placed among the very greatest of historians. So overwhelming was the support of the archaeological evidence that Ramsey eventually became a Christ follower. Uh, Dr. William F. Albright, uh, late Professor Emeritus of John Hopkins University, uh, declared that there can be no doubt that archaeology has absolutely confirmed the historicity of the Bible. For example, uh, just so that people know what we're talking about, the, the book of Genesis makes mention of the famous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed for their utter abandonment to wickedness. No record of such places existed outside of the biblical record, leading many to question the Bible's historical credibility. Uh, now archaeologists have unearthed the place of pagan worship, for the inhabitants of the two cities at a place called Bab el-Jah, uh, including evidence of sudden and unexplainable destruction around 2000 BC. The remains of the city, interestingly, were covered in layers of ash and sulfur. 
which as the Bible records is how the city was destroyed as fire was rained down on it in judgment. Even entire civilizations, such as the Hittites, were unknown outside of the Bible. Since a review of the known literature of the day revealed no mention of such a people, the conclusion was the Bible was simply an error. Well, then the capital city of the Hittite empire was discovered, as well as 40 other cities that made up their empire. Mm -hmm. Another example is King David, mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible, yet until recently, no record of such a person could be found outside of the Bible. Uh, that led some to put the biblical King David on the same footing as the mythical King Arthur. Mm -hmm. Then uh, in 1993 and 1994, at the northern Israelite site of Tel Dan, there were pieces of a 3,000-year-old monumental um, basalt stone was found that bore inscriptions about the king of the house of David. Mm. Uh, this came, um, uh, and that was the first non-biblical um, attestation of David's existence. Uh, even something as seemingly uh, minor as a biblical mention of Jesus and his disciples being out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee has been challenged. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason that came under attack was because the, the boats like that had never been found. I mean, there was no record of boats like that size, much less ones that would have carried Jesus and 12 of his disciples, as the New Testament claims. Boats like that didn't exist. Well, then a severe drought happened in the mid-1980s, which unearthed a lot of stuff, but it brought the Sea of Galilee to unusually low levels. Two brothers discovered the remains of a 2,000-year-old boat that was buried in the mud there along the shore. And uh, dating to the very time of Christ, a boat that could be either rowed or sailed and could hold up to 15 men and perfectly match the New Testament descriptions. There's just so many other archaeological finds that we could talk about. We found the burial box of Caiaphas, the high priest that Jesus was brought to uh, for his trial before his crucifixion. We found inscriptions related to Pontius Pilate, uh, the fifth governor of, of uh, Roman Judea, also a key player in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. We found inscription support for the Philistine Empire, so prominently featured in the Old Testament, giving support to the very names even of the leaders and cities that the Bible records as being accurate. Even the signature seal of the prophet Isaiah has been discovered. But here's the real headline. Not only has the Bible's claims been supported through archeological research, this is very important, Alexis, and we're continually finding more and more things that support the biblical record. There has never been an archeological discovery that has ever refuted a single biblical claim. Mm. Everything unearthed, everything found, the Bible has an absolute perfect track record. Nothing in archeology span has ever refuted anything the Bible claimed. Mm. Yeah, that is very powerful. And yet, as I'm listening to you, I think what's most challenging about this whole conversation so far is what I want to ask you next, which is what I feel like culture would, would, would say in response to all the evidence that you've already put on the table, which is, okay, that sounds great. And it sounds very true for you. But since our culture has such a big deal with authority, they're going to say, but I reject it as authoritative for me. Mm -hmm. So why might they consider even thinking about the Bible as a potential authority in their own life? It's a great question. And it all comes back to, you know, is there a God on the loose? And if so, was he attached to this? Hmm. I mean, th those are the two things. Is there a God? And most people would say, well, yeah, I would posit that. And we can have fun conversations about the definition of that God. But yes. I said, okay. And the next question is, 
is is God attached to this book? And I think we can actually get at that. Um, and and I think this relates to prophecy. The quickest way that I've always talked about this is is through prophecy. How can how, how can you determine whether God's involved in this book? Well, let's you know if the supposed inspired authors of the Bible foretold events with accuracy and were never wrong in those prophecies, that would be convincing evidence that there is a God on the loose and involved with those prophecies and evidence of the Bible's authoritative credibility. If such prophecies did not come true or were at best average in their success rate, then the Bible's position as an authoritative text would be dramatically weakened. So how does the Bible fare by such a test? Well, let's just consider the prophecies regarding the life and ministry of the Messiah, which Christians believe were made in relation to the coming of Jesus. In the Old Testament, Almost 800 years prior to his birth, there are prophecies about the place of the Messiah's birth, his ancestry, uh, how he would be born, how he would be betrayed for a specific amount of money, how he would be put to death, how his bones would remain unbroken, and how the soldiers would cast lots for his clothing, all of which took place in his life. So what would the chances be of all of those prophecies each one fulfilled in minute detail, uh, having come about through chance in the life and person of Jesus. Well, Dr. Peter Stoner, who was a scientist and mathematician and former chair of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College, uh, and later chair of the Department of uh, Science at Westmont College, worked on this with 600 of his students. Their goal was to calculate the odds for the detailed accuracy of just one biblical prophecy about the coming Messiah to come true in the life of Jesus by chance. Because that's how you could explain it, by chance. Eventually, they determined that the odds of such an event were one in 400 million. So Stoner and his students then calculated what the odds would be to have eight of the prophecies come about that were about the Messiah, to have them come about specifically as fulfilled by Jesus by chance. The odds came out to be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's a figure with 17 zeros behind it. Um, Stoner then went on to look at the odds of 48 prophecies about the Messiah being fulfilled by chance in the life and person of Jesus. His conclusion was that it would be 1 chance in 10 to the 157th power for all of them to have come true in the life of just one person in history by chance. But that is exactly what happened. Not just 48, though, not just 48, up to 332 distinct Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah were fulfilled by Jesus. Now, for that to have happened by chance would be akin to a person randomly finding a predetermined atom among all the atoms in a trillion, 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 trillion billion universes the size of our universe. For anyone who is trying to determine the authority, you know, whether or not to give authoritative credibility to the Bible, the odds in your favor on prophecy alone that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that God was involved in it are overwhelming. Well, if there's so much congruency between the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially with concerns or concerning the, the prophecies, as you mentioned, what about the question that people often have, which is, well, what about all of the contradictions in the Bible? Doesn't yeah, what about those? Really, yeah, the, they, the Bible lacks internal credibility. I respond to this a handful of times myself, so I'm interested to hear, how do you respond? Yeah, 
Let's begin with what a contradiction is. Let's, let's define our terms. It's always important mm-hmm. to do that when having these conversations. In any introductory course on philosophy, you learn about what's called the law of non-contradiction or logical fallacies. In essence, you can't have A and non-A and both of them be true. That would be a contradiction. You can't say it's raining and it's not raining and both be true. You, you can't say it's, it's hot and it's cold and have both be true. That's the nature of a contradiction. Logical fallacy. You can't have A and non-A and both be true. So a biblical contradiction would be like Mark's account saying Jesus died on the cross. And then Luke's account saying he died falling off a donkey. You know, or he never died. I mean, those are contradictions. But if you just have Mark saying something that Jesus said on the cross, and John's account comes along and includes something else Jesus said, or even leaves out something Mark recorded, that's not a contradiction. Uh, John's account never contradicted what Mark recorded. John just included another detail or didn't include one that Mark did. That's all. So let's consider a common citation of a supposed contradiction. In Mark's account of the death of Jesus, there's an emphasis on Jesus' agony. In Luke's telling, there's a focus on Jesus' concern for his mother. Uh, I've actually read entire books that have taken that alone and said, see, contradiction, they couldn't agree, they they were telling two different stories. And I went, I don't, what? (laughs) That's not a contradiction. He could have been in agony and concerned with his mother, (laughs) <laughs> or, or consider that in Matthew, we're told that Peter will deny Christ before the cock crows. And then in Mark, we're told that Peter will deny Christ before the cock crows twice. That's not a contradiction. Peter was to deny Christ before the cock crowed. Mark simply added an additional detail. He didn't grow once, he grew twice. Not a, not a contradiction and not exactly a scandal. Which is why whenever somebody brings up how the Bible contradicts itself, I asked him, I said, well, do you know that to be true or is that just what you've heard? Mm-hmm. And then I simply asked them to show me one. Mm-hmm. You know, show it to me. They can't. Uh, or if they do show something, it's not a contradiction at all. Then there are the supposed contradictions between the Old Testament and the New Testament, kind of the final thing. Uh, but those aren't contradictions either. They're just, you know, matters of how the Old Testament was fulfilled by Jesus. And let's take the most famous one of all that people throw out. They say in the Old Testament, it says eye for an eye, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, um, a bruise for a bruise. It goes on for a little while. But in the New Testament, Jesus said, you've heard it said that punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say don't resist an evil person. I mean, I say, I say turn the other cheek. Okay. Which is it? An eye for an eye? Or is it turn the other cheek? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. The eye for an eye passage in Deuteronomy 21 was all about whether you could pursue private vendettas and retaliate when you have been wronged. And the answer was no. That was for the judges to decide. You're to follow a principle based on eye for an eye, meaning compensation and restitution in direct proportion to the crime. Uh they were to um, match the damages, if you will, inflicted, and no more, no more. You couldn't have blood feuds. Uh, you couldn't have private wars. 
Uh, so an eye for an eye was this literary device to give a formula for compensation. Then Jesus gave its fulfillment. You've heard it said an eye for an eye, and that's good. But I'm going to take it farther. Don't retaliate at all. Don't harbor a spirit of resentment. If someone does you wrong, meet it by doing them something right. And that, that kind of fulfillment ran throughout Jesus' teaching over and over again. The letter of the law was met with the greater, more challenging spirit of the law. And there was a lot of this in the New Testament. You have heard that it was said, and he quotes something from the Old Testament. And he, then he wouldn't contradict it. He would fulfill it. For example, you have heard that it was said you're not to commit adultery. And that's good. Yeah, I'm not, you know, but let's take that further and talk about, let's not even lust. Let's kind of guard against lust. You've heard it said not to commit murder. It's a good thing. Uh, now let's talk about not even going to first base of hate. Uh, Jesus wanted to take the law and put it in people's hearts. So there's no contradiction just bringing the law to its fullest expression and application. Yeah. Um, I know we've been talking for a while. Let me throw in one last question. Not because we haven't talked about this. In fact, um, we'll we'll link some um, previous episodes um, in the show notes that have to do with this. But it just fits in nicely here, which is the question. I'll try to make it are there Okay. Um, are there any, what about the seeming contradictions between the claims of the Bible and those of science? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've talked about science in other podcasts. You're right. And so we'll link to those in the show notes where we had extensive conversations about what the Bible says about the age of the earth and, and creation. And we talked about the big bang theory and all those kinds of things that are points of concern and contention. So we'll, we'll link those. I also would send people to my book, what uh, Christianity for people who aren't Christians which is written, you know, explaining the Christian faith uh, to people who aren't Christians. And so much about what we're talking about is in there and done by the Bible, but also all about science. So we won't get into the weeds of all of that. But let me say in kind of a really 30,000 foot quick level, there's no contradiction. There's no inherent tension whatsoever between the Bible and science. God's truth and scientific truth can both be embraced. They're both true. Because there isn't just a scientific mind over here and a Christian mind over there. There's just the mind. and It's been given by God for us to use. There's not biblical truth over here, scientific truth over there. There's just truth. And all truth is God's truth wherever you find it. And the more you look at science, the more you see there is no conflict whatsoever with the Christian faith. In fact, if anything, there's enormous congruity. And science almost begs for the existence of God to explain what it is finding. So um, God is the author of both, both science and theology. It's as if God has given us two books uh, to draw from, and they're not in contradiction with each other whatsoever. And those two books are the Bible and the created cosmos. And as many have pointed to the 19th Psalm, there's this beautiful example of it where he says in the beginning, the heavens declare the glory of God, you know, the first book, and tells us things, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And then it says, and the law of the Lord is also perfect in his precepts. And so you have both books, two books, science reveals truth about God and what he has done in creation and through creation. And the Bible gives us the truth that God has revealed to us as that creation. Hmm. That was very well put and succinctly. So thank you for that. Thank you, Jim, for, gosh, I, I didn't give you a, a little bit of content to have to work through today. So thank you for um, for working through all of this. I hope that it serves you as well as our listeners. And I, just a quick thank you to our listeners too, because so many of the questions that we tackled today came from um, your requests and our submissions so, um, on the website. So thank you for that. Keep them coming. We love hearing about what you want us to talk about, what's going on in your world. Um, so yeah, we look forward to tackling another one of those soon. Have a great week. We'll, have, we'll hope you'll join us again next week. <laughs>